In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies. No meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for three full weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. For now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel. For from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is four days yet to come." When he had spoken to me, according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I, I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. Father, Paul told Timothy that all of Scripture is inspired and that all Scripture is profitable. In other words, there's value in all of Scripture. We may have to work a little harder to understand that value, but nevertheless, there is value. And Father, as we come to a portion of Scripture like Daniel chapter 10, it's very easy to get caught up in some of the unexplainable things and miss 
the thrust of the message. I pray that you would not let that be the case today. Help us, Father, to focus on the message that you have for us today from this ancient text. Father, calm our hearts, still our minds. May we fight hard to keep the distractions down in a way. Father, because we are hearing from you. This has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with you. May we approach it in that way. Ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. To those of us who have lost some tread on our tires, we know by experience that life at times is a struggle. We know that in life there are times when difficulties abound. And the Bible is not shy. The Bible never hesitates in describing the Christian life as warfare. Not physical warfare, but spiritual warfare. And this spiritual warfare is real. It's not a fantasy. It is not the product of someone's overstimulated imagination. The Christian has powerful enemies working both for them and against them in the unseen realm. And beloved, if you are in Christ, if you are a believer, you are a part of this great conflict. That's why the Apostle Paul teaches us about the spiritual armor that every believer, it's a necessity for every believer to put on daily the spiritual armor of God in order to protect ourselves and to keep us from becoming casualties of this spiritual warfare. Sadly, I'm afraid, many Christians, they're not properly prepared for the war that they will inevitably face each and every day. They go out each day dressed as if they were going on a picnic or a holiday. They're wearing their shorts and their T-shirts and their flip-flops, leaving themselves totally unprepared for the day's battles. And what happens? We lose. And perhaps there's some here today that you don't really think much of spiritual warfare. Now, I'm not talking about when I was... Uh, a younger man, I think it was about 30 years ago, Frank Peretti wrote a series of books, This Present Darkness. Who read this pre any of those series of books? Okay. Let me talk to Donna Marion for a minute. No. <laughs> Frank Peretti wrote these series of novels in which uh, dealt with the subject of demons in everyday life. And I think he wrote several of them, but it just got to be too much because old Frank... He saw a demon everywhere. Burned your toast, pray the demon out of the toaster. Car won't start, get that hope, open the hood up, get that demon out of there. I mean, it was just way too many demons for reality. But we must not make the mistake of going to the other extreme and think, well, there is no influence apart from what we can see. Because Daniel 10 clearly teaches that there is influence going on in realms that we cannot see. And only by the grace of God, Daniel was given insight into this. So that not only would he understand what was going on, but that you and I would be able to understand what is going on. 
And so if you've not given much thought to the reality of spiritual warfare, my prayer for you today would be that by the time that we get through the end of Daniel chapter 10, you will see just how real it is. Now, Daniel chapter 10 starts the final vision of the book. In fact, Daniel chapter 10 prepares us for the details of the vision in chapters 11 and 12. In reality, chapters 10, 11, and 12 make up one complete unit. And if time and your patience permitted, we really should address it as one complete unit. But I know time nor your patience would uh, allow that to happen. So I've titled today's message as well as the next two messages, The Great Conflict, because they all deal with the same subject. They're all a part of the whole. So in verse 1 is a setup for everything that follows. Let's look at verse 1 together. Daniel writes, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar, and the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. So this is written kind of after the fact of that he's seen all of this, he's given understanding, and so he introduces the vision this way. So the vision that encompasses the final three chapters of the book of Daniel takes place two years after his uh, previous vision of, uh, that uh, led to the subsequent appearance of Gabriel. Remember, Gabriel was sent by God to let him know that his prayer had been heard, that his prayer would be answered, and as we spent a lot of time on last week, to reassure Daniel, to let Daniel know that despite all of these terrible things that he saw, that he was greatly loved. Now, if your Bible is like mine, you'll notice that verse 2 begins a new paragraph. So in verse 2, Daniel begins to tell us that for three weeks he was in a state of mourning. For three weeks he had not any, as he describes it, rich food or drank any of the wine that was available to him as a man of standing uh, in the government. He also says he didn't anoint himself with oil. And you have to keep in mind that uh, Daniel lived in a very hot and arid climate that would quickly dry out his skin. And so to, com to combat this problem, they would rub themselves down with oil, much like we use lotions today. So we see Daniel, he's mourning. He's, he's denying himself things that he normally would partake of. So the question is, why was Daniel in mourning? What has caused him to change his regular pattern, his regular routine? Well, you know, it doesn't matter how old you are. You never forget the place of your birth. The place that you were born all, is always going to hold, at least for me it does, uh, always has a, 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 a soft spot in my heart. It's a place of affection. Uh, you, you have affection for the place that you called home. You know, you think of the things that, you could, that I can only get in Cincinnati up until recently. Skyline Chili, amen? <laughs> La Rosa's Pizza, even better. You know, the Reds. Yeah. Bengals. Yeah. yeah. But for better or for worse, Cincinnati's my home. I'm a Buckeye through and through. Well, Daniel was mourning for those who had returned to his homeland for those who had returned to Jerusalem. He was mourning for them, and he was mourning for the condition that they found upon their return. Now, Daniel, and this is important, 
Daniel is not mourning for himself. Daniel is not having a pity party. Daniel was not saying, oh, poor, poor me. I can't believe what's happened to my homeland. And I can't believe that I'm stuck here in exile. No, he wasn't having a pity party for himself. His concern was for the condition of the people. His concern was for the condition of the city of Jerusalem. His concern was for the opposition that the people were facing and the discouragement that opposition, if we are not careful, produces in our lives. So he was concerned for his national brothers and sisters. And likewise, as we mentioned in prayer meeting this morning, we as believers must be concerned about our spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ who are at this very hour, some being persecuted for their faith. See, we sit here in little old Berea, Kentucky, and we've got air conditioning, and we've got a nice place to meet, and we forget about those people that, are, that have to meet in secret, and who, they don't know that perhaps there's someone in their midst who's a spy on behalf of the government ready to rat them out, and they live in fear that the knock at the door will come, and their husband or their wife or their kids or someone will be carried off and persecuted and maybe killed. See, we should never, ever forget that. Daniel's heart was with the people of God, and I pray that our hearts and our prayers are with our brothers and sisters in Christ, wherever they may be. I think Daniel also mourned because just a fraction of the exiles decided to return home. Now, let's think this through. <clears throat> Many of them who had been carried into exile were raised in the exile. Who knows, maybe met their spouses in exile. Had children in exile. Had grown so accustomed to the customs and the culture of Babylon that they did not want to go back to Jerusalem. In other words, they forgot where they came from. They no longer felt any allegiance to the God of Israel. You say, is there a lesson for us to learn from this? Absolutely, because what we are exiles in this world, aren't we? This world is not our home. And if we are not careful, we will think that it is, and we become so attached to it that we think that this is all that there is. It's not. We must guard, fiercely guard ourselves against the tendency of thinking that this world is our home. I just finished reading the biography, Ian Murray's biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones. And the second to last chapter was worth all the other chapters in the book. You say, how come? Because it dealt with his death. And what struck me was the attitude the good doctor had towards death. He was ready to die. He looked forward to his heavenly home. For those of you who, who do not know, he was diagnosed with colon cancer. Uh, in 1968, that's when he retired from the pulpit of Westminster, but he lived another 13 years. What many people don't know is that the cancer returned at the end of his life. And he would go and he would take his treatments, and finally, about three weeks before his death, the doctor said, Doctor, there's really no point in you coming anymore. The treatments aren't doing you any good. 
And when he reached the point when he could no longer speak, he wrote a note to his family that said, don't pray for healing. Don't try and hold me back from the glory. The good doctor died on a Sunday morning. And he told Ian Murray, who wrote his biography, that he wished that people, that Christians, spent more time thinking about death. And that far too many Christians don't spend enough time thinking about death and the glory that awaits them. Folks, beloved, do you realize there are no bad days in heaven? I would say the worst day in heaven is better than the best day here, but there are no worse days in heaven. I miss my parents. But I'm glad I don't see my mom suffer with cancer. I miss my dad. But I don't miss him struggling for breath. See? So I have to ask you, are you so attached to this world that you don't want to leave it? Daniel mourned that too many of, the, of his people were content to stay in Babylon. Second, he was mourning because the situation that was taking place in Jerusalem Remember, God had shown Daniel through the writings of Jeremiah that the time of the exile was coming to an end and that God would fulfill his promise to, and the people of Judah would be allowed to return to the promised land. So in the first year of Cyrus, the first of the exiles returned home to Jerusalem, but upon their homecoming, things didn't go as they had planned. Things didn't go as they had hoped. There was no welcoming parade. There was no homecoming party. They managed to get the, the uh, altar in the temple rebuilt. But once they got that completed, they began to encounter opposition. And the opposition was so fierce that they ceased the rebuilding program. And it didn't begin again until 15 years later. So think about what those people must have felt. They'd been so excited to return home. But what did they find when they got there? A city in ruins, a temple destroyed, and neighbors who didn't really want them coming back. And Daniel, upon hearing this news, goes into a period of mourning, not for himself, but for the people of God and for the glory of God. And it wasn't just the opposition to the rebuilding that concerned Daniel. I think what concerned Daniel more was that the fact that the exiles gave up so easily in the face of opposition. The situation at home, meaning Jerusalem, required the people of God to return to their God and to remain faithful to God despite the hardships and the opposition that they were facing. See, excitement will only take you so far, right? We've all entered into some project with a great deal of excitement. But excitement fades, doesn't it? And many times what happens when the excitement fades, we give up, we quit. If we're not careful, this temptation to give up overwhelms us, and so that's exactly what we do. Now, listen, there are times when you ought to quit some things. Okay? 
But this wasn't one of those times. So how do you stay faithful to God over the long haul? How do you stay faithful to God over the long haul? Well, Sinclair Ferguson says, the knowledge of God's work of grace in the past encourages us to trust him and seek his blessing in the present and for the future. So what's the best way to remind yourself of what God has done in the past? Stay in the scriptures. You know, you read the Old Testament You read the books of the law, you read the prophets, and repeatedly you see God telling the people, remember, remember, remember. Remember what? Remember particularly the Exodus. Remember how I delivered you out of slavery. Remember how I went toe-to-toe with Pharaoh and I squashed all of his false gods. I conquered them all. I brought you out with a mighty hand. They made the mistake of chasing after you, and what happened? They drowned in the midst of the Red Sea. Remember, remember my faithfulness to you. Remember my power that I've used on your behalf. But I think there's also another way, and that is we can look back in our own past, in our own lives, and see what God has done for us, and that encourages us to be faithful now in the future. All of us can look back to something that God has done that gives us encouragement and keeps us moving forward, gives us the strength and faith in order to keep us moving forward. Second, it's just a very practical thing. Faithfulness over the long haul requires commitment. Commitment. You have to make up your mind. Here I stand. I can what? Do none else. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Faithfulness requires commitment. Daniel was mourning over the lack of commitment being displayed by those who had returned to Jerusalem. And if anyone understood the need for faithfulness over the long haul, it had to be Daniel. We meet Daniel in uh, chapter 1, obviously, of the book. And we said he was probably somewhere 14 or 15, maybe 17 years of age. Now we come to Daniel here again in Daniel chapter 10. And guess what? He's in his mid to late 80s. That's what I call faithfulness over the long haul. Do you, don't you think that there was a period in his life when he had to make a commitment? And there were times where he had to re-up on that commitment. He had to recommit himself. Daniel was faithful. Daniel was committed even in the face of death. If you pray three times a day, you're going into the lion's den. Then I'm going into the lion's den. See? He was willing to risk his life in order to remain faithful to God. And so God rewarded his faithfulness by letting him get a glimpse into the future, or what the future held for the people of God. So out of the morning comes a messenger. Look at verses 4 through 6. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, His arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Daniel, who already in his life had had several strange visions and dreams, now sees one that by his own account affects him more than the previous visions. And in this final vision, he describes a man who was unlike any man or anything that he had seen. 
So immediately our minds want to know, who is this man? Can we identify this man 100%? Get your pencils out. I'm going to give you the answer. You ready? No. We can't. We can't. But that doesn't mean that there aren't some parallels in Scripture that we can draw from to aid our understanding. Of course, immediately for most of us, many of us perhaps, our minds immediately turn to the Lord Jesus. And why is that so? Because as we read the vision of Daniel here and we remember the vision of John in Revelation, there are some similarities. But as we read the text closely here in Daniel chapter 10, I think there are a couple of things that lead us away from identifying this one as Jesus. For instance, in verse 11, the man in the vision says to Daniel that he has been sent to Daniel by someone else in order to strengthen him. He goes on to tell Daniel that he had been obstructed for a time in reaching him by the prince of the kingdom of Persia, a demonic being, until the angel Michael arrived to help him. Now, I will grant this, that one could argue that if it is Jesus, then perhaps it was the Father who sent him. But that still leaves us with the problem. Why Jesus, of why the Son of God, why God would need help from Michael? That goes against everything else that we know that Scripture teaches. So for that reason alone, I would not identify this man as Jesus. Here's what we can do. If we study the parallels between the appearance of this man in Daniel chapter 10, and then we go to Ezekiel chapter 1, where Ezekiel has this really strange vision of God and the cherubims, well, we can see from that, from comparing those two accounts, that there are some similarities, but they're not identical. There are some differences between the two visions, between the two appearances. But if we go to Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 2 through 4, and Ezekiel chapter 10, and you can do this this afternoon at halftime while you're watching a football game, amen. If you read that, you will see that in these two passages of Scripture, Ezekiel has a vision of a man dressed in linen. And what was the man in Daniel chapter 10 wearing? Linen, okay? So could it be that the one that Ezekiel saw is the same angelic being that appears to Daniel in chapter 10? We can't say for sure because the Bible doesn't tell us for sure. But I can live with that if that's what it is. See, here's the key. Each of these messengers, whether it's in Daniel or whether it's in Ezekiel, they were sent to, ref to reflect the image of the glorious God who sent them. See, we get so hung up on trying to identify who they are that we miss the point. The point was to impress upon Daniel the glory and the holiness of God. Hence, the dramatic effect his appearance had on Daniel. When Daniel saw this great vision, his body is drained of all strength. Verse 8 says that his uh, radiant appearance was fearfully changed. The Hebrew reads, my splendor was changed to ruin. We hear the echo of Isaiah here, don't we? Who got a glimpse of the 
throne of God. And what's he say? Woe is me. Why, Isaiah? Because mine eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. And what is it that made such a dramatic effect upon Daniel, that had such a dramatic effect on him? I want to emphasize this. It's not necessarily the man's strange appearance. It's what his strange appearance communicated to Daniel. His appearance communicated the holiness of God. It was unlike anything that Daniel had ever seen. Such was the awesome display that represented God's holiness. And what happens? Do not miss this, folks. Daniel was struck down by the holiness of God. See, the holiness of God is not simply a subject to be studied or a doctrine to be debated. The holiness of God is a reality when properly understood, lays us low in the dirt and causes us to cry out like Isaiah, woe is me. Like Daniel, we become mute. It shuts our mouths. We hang our heads. We tremble. We have nothing to say in the face of such holiness. The holiness of God shows us just how sinful we are and therefore shows us that we have absolutely nothing to offer him to make restitution for our sin. And I, I wrote a question down here, but I need to rephrase it. The question was, could it, could it be in our casual culture that we have severely diminished view, the, uh, uh, have a severely diminished view of God's holiness? Let me restate that. In our culture, we have a severely diminished view of God's holiness. Amen. Ian Dugard writes, the vision pulsates with brightness and reverberates with sound, crushing Daniel to the ground and sending his companions scurrying for cover. And that's not the vision that our culture has of the holiness of God, is it? And you know why? Because it's not the vision of the holiness of God that the modern church has. You go to many churches, not all churches, but you go to many churches and God's your friend. God's your bro. God's your buddy. God is just an old man, just doing the best that he can. As one commentator said, our culture's God is just like Santa Claus. He may perhaps threaten to put, your coal in your, to put coal in your stocking if you're bad, but we all know that it's merely an empty threat. Well, God, my friend, makes no empty threats. The exile is proof of that. And Bible's filled with examples of it. So Daniel sees a man ablaze with holiness in whose presence, even for a man as godly as Daniel was, lays him out with his face to the ground. And I have to ask you, have you seen the holiness of God with the spiritual eyes of faith? Has your vision of God's holiness caused you to lay in the ground drained of all strength, leaving you totally dependent upon his mercy and grace? Have you experienced the weightiness of the glory of God? Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book, Preaching and Pastors, was that what it's called? Preaching and Preachers, something like that. I've only read it forever. <laughs> he said this, the role of the pastor is to give the people a sense of the presence, the glory, and the weightiness of God. You should walk away hearing Scripture, being impressed with God, fearing God, 
not in a slavish way, but in a loving way, an appreciative way. Duguid again says, God's purpose in revealing himself to Daniel in this glorious manner was not to crush him, but to encourage him, to encourage him. So Daniel first sees the man, and that has a tremendous impact on him. Then Daniel, but then the man speaks, and Daniel describes it like the sound of a multitude. You know, the best way that I think that we could understand this and illustrate this is if you've ever gone to uh, a sporting event, a major league sporting event, an NFL event where the stadium is actually full, perhaps in, in uh, Boston, but certainly not Cincinnati. But uh, anyway, uh, you hear the roar of the crowd, right? And it's almost deafening at times. That was the sound that the, this man spoke with. And upon hearing this voice, Daniel falls on his face, he says, in a deep sleep. But the next thing Daniel knows is hand. He feels the touch of a hand, and this touch revives him enough to get on his hands and his knees, but he says, I'm still trembling from the experience. Now, we want to make sure that we don't miss the contrast between human weakness and divine strength. Just the appearance and the sound of the voice of this angelic being, not God himself, but this angelic being was far more than Daniel could stand. But in an act of grace, this angelic being continues to reach out and touch Daniel in order to provide him with the strength that he needed. See, God was teaching his children through Daniel a much-needed lesson, which is that he shows us our weaknesses so that we will not look to ourselves for strength, but look to him for strength. What did Paul say? When I'm weak, then I'm strong. Daniel needed help. He needed, he needed strength. He needed help from outside of himself. In the face of the holiness and the glory of God, he was helpless. He was unable to help himself. He couldn't even get up off the ground without help. And the man clothed and linen speaks to Daniel. What does he say? Oh, Daniel, a man greatly loved. I've been sent to you to help you understand what you're about to hear. Daniel finally has enough strength to get up on his feet. And Daniel was about to receive a message of encouragement. And this angelic being wanted to make sure that he had the strength to not only hear the message, but to understand the message. So this man in the linen clothes speaks to Daniel, beginning in verse 11. He said to me, O Daniel, a man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. You see what's happening here? Daniel is given insight into the powers of the unseen world. The man dressed in linen had been dispatched by God, but it took him 21 days. It took him three full weeks to reach Daniel. Say, so, well, why was he delayed? Well, he tells us 
that he was confronted by a satanic angel who possessed enough power to impede the delivery of the message that God had for Daniel. And the prince of the kingdom of Persia is an agent of Satan. Now notice this satanic angel is identified with the kingdom of Persia. And we wonder at times why the various governments of the world make some of the decisions that they do. Don't be naive. They are being influenced. Scripture testifies to the fact that they are being influenced by dark spiritual forces. Say, oh, you're a conspiracy nut. No, I'm a Bible believer. Say, well, that's probably true of North Korea. That's probably true of Iran. That's probably true of that uh, old axis of evil. That's sure not true of the United States. You better get your head out of the sand. So we have insight here into the difficulties of God's people. We have insight into the difficulties God's church faces here on earth. There is a heavenly conflict being waged by the forces of God and the fallen forces of Satan. And in this case, the power of this demonic prince was so great that it delayed the one sent by God. But notice, it delayed the, the, the delivery. I knew I was going to stumble there. It delayed the delivery, but it did not stop the delivery. The message got through. God's word always prevails. Always. God's word always prevails. See? Now notice how Daniel responds to the angel's words. Verse 15, when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. What's going on here? He just doesn't know what to say. I think there's probably a part of him who's like, I just can't believe what I'm hearing. As the reality of what he was hearing, as he understood the reality of what he was being told, as he understood the reality that he understands now that he's a part of, he just falls silent. All he can do is stare at the ground. It wasn't until he was once again strengthened by the angel that he was able to speak. Now Daniel understands why the exiles in Jerusalem were facing such opposition. Now Daniel understood why they couldn't get more done. He understood why they're facing this hostility. It wasn't just the neighbors who didn't want the city rebuilt. It wasn't just the neighbors who didn't want the temple rebuilt. It was Satan himself who didn't want the temple rebuilt and the city rebuilt. <coughs> See, the nature of the fight was spiritual, not physical. But notice this. To encourage us, we are not fighting the battle alone. Daniel was not alone in this struggle. And I would assume that up until the appearance of this heavenly angel, he probably didn't understand everything that was going on behind the scenes. And perhaps he kept searching for a, uh, an earthly solution. But the reality of the matter was there was no earthly solution. You see, when we feel like we're in the fight all by ourselves, we can quickly become discouraged and depressed. We can easily adopt a defeatist attitude, but once we realize that we are not in the fight alone, we can fight on with a renewed sense of what? Confidence. We draw strength and encouragement knowing that we are not alone in life's struggles. Truly, God is on our side, and he sends his angels to fight for us. But frankly, we don't know it. We don't get a text, hey, this is your guardian angel. 
looking out for you today. You don't need a text. It's a reality. It's happening. Now notice something special in verse 21. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except, now notice this, Michael, your prince. Do you get that? Michael, your prince. What's he saying here? Someone's looking out for you, Daniel. Someone's fighting for you, Daniel. Someone's protecting you, Daniel. You're not alone. You have God's brightest and best contending for you. Just a couple of quick thoughts. First, as a believer, you must realize the nature of the great conflict. As a believer, you must realize the nature of the great conflict. Say, what is the nature of the conflict? It's spiritual. Paul makes this abundantly clear in Ephesians chapter 6, which we will come to here in just a few weeks. Ephesians 6, 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Why, Paul? Why do I have to put on this armor? Why do I need this protection? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's the nature of the conflict. That's the nature of the fight. Second, realize that the great conflict is continual or ongoing, however you want to say it. The nature of the great conflict is continual. Look at verse 20. Then he said, do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. But before Daniel could breathe a sigh of relief, like, okay, one big battle and it's done. No, and when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. See, this angelic being who was sent to Daniel says, when I leave you, I will continue my fight on your behalf against the demon that's doing whatever he can to exert influence over the kingdom of Persia. But Daniel, you need to know this, that once the Persian empire is no more, there will be another empire. It'll be Alexander the Great. It'll be the Grecian empire. And then the spiritual battle will continue with the prince of Greece. And implied in that statement is, Daniel, once the empire of Greece is no more, another empire will arise, another empire after that, another empire after that, another empire after that, and each corresponding empire will have its own demonic agent attached to it and will continue to fight them. And they'll continue to fight you. And it'll go on until, look at verse 13 of Daniel, Daniel chapter 12. But go your way till the end. These are precious words. And you, sh and you shall rest and stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. See, the people of the kingdom of God are engaged in a great conflict. There are battles being fought against us and for us in the unseen realm. 
but we are not alone in the fight. Say, so what, what have we been given? Let me give you four things I think it is. We have been given the Son of God, the Spirit of God, the Word of God, the armor of God, and don't neglect this last one, the church of God, the people of God. Never forget, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Well, let's pray. Now, Father, just as this message was delivered to Daniel for his encouragement, so too it is meant for our encouragement. Father, there have been times for all of us when we feel like the deck is just stacked against us. But during those times, in those times, in the midst of those times, we need to understand that the deck is not stacked against us. That you are fighting for us. You are there for us. Surrounding us. Protecting us, guiding us, encouraging us. Father, and now my prayer would be that like a mighty armor, uh, arm, armory, army, we, Grace Community Church, would move out with confidence, knowing that we have been given the Son of God, the Spirit of God, the Word of God, the armor of God, and the people of God. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.